Hello, and welcome to Story and Fiction Podcast number 29. The award-winning short stories, Clowns, Dilemma, and Crossing Over, read by the author. The first story is Clouds, the story of a loving single-parent mother who must take her developmentally disabled son to be institutionalized when a trusted caregiver dies. Her grief is intensified by the obstacles her estranged husband presents. I'm Bill Coles, your host, so let's get started with Clouds. Clouds by William H. Coles Put your glasses on, Margaret said to her son. He touched his neck, wet with sweat, and wiped his hand on his T-shirt. The back window was down a few inches for ventilation and gave a steady, breathy growl at highway speeds. The glasses, Ben, Margaret said. He picked up the thick lenses from the seat with a couple of missed tries, pulled down the temple straps over his head. We'll play a game, Margaret said. You want to play a game? Play game, Ben said. She passed an 18-wheeler, leaving plenty of room where she tucked back into the slow lane. The sun was mid-morning, and wavy lines of invisible heat from the road were already distorting the view. Ben rocked back and forth. She let him go on for a while. Oh, can you see the clouds? she asked. There was a line of cars slowed in the fast lane and bumper to bumper. She kept a good distance to let them sort it out. Ben stopped rocking and was shaking his head from side to side. Look up, she said. In the sky. The clouds are in the sky, Ben, next to where God lives. God live, Ben said. He strained against the seatbelt to lean forward and look up through the windshield. Can you see them? Margaret asked. See them? He said. Well, we'll find one and we'll name it. Tell what it is. There are all sorts of things up in the sky. I'd do good, he said. Of course you will, she said. I'd do good, he said again. Find one up there. Keep looking. Tell me what it is. He put his hand on the window glass. You can't touch them, Ben. They're far away. He took his hand down. Far, he said. What does it look like, Ben? Does it remind you of something? Ben stared. Finally, he said, Weaky. She didn't respond for a long moment. He was looking at her, grinning. She's gone, Ben. Gone, he said. He continued to look. Story, he said to the cloud. She's gone, Ben. She's in heaven with the angels. She won't be here to tell you stories anymore. I love you, he said to the cloud. Sorrow altered his usual smile and his eyes were moist. It's okay, she said, talking to herself, as she often did these days. What if he did believe Weeky was a cloud? There was no harm. He slept a while. So as not to wake him, she passed the rest stop where they would have exercised. A truck horn blast woke him. She said, Look, Ben, more clouds. In less than an hour, she drove into the closest city to their small town. She found her ex-husband sitting in the park near the museum where he usually was in the morning on the rare days she had to find him. She parked at the curb on a yellow line and honked a few times. 
He folded his blanket into a long rectangle and wrapped it around his neck. He stuffed gloves and two long scarves into a laundry bag and then put on a woolen ski cap that he pulled down over his ears. She couldn't tell if he was sober. She hadn't seen any bottles near him as he packed up. He came to the car, opened the back door, and climbed in. "'It's Daddy, Ben,' Margaret said. "'Daddy?' Ben said. She made no effort to greet her husband. Her intense aversion had turned to dispassionate distaste a couple years ago. Even from the front seat she could smell the sweet, acrid breath of bad booze and indigestion. "'Hey, my little man,' he said. "'Little man,' Ben said without looking around, and he started rocking backward and forward. Margaret pulled to the side of the street and took a city map from a folder in the side door pocket. She studied the map on the steering wheel. He's no better, her ex-husband said. He seems worse. Weeky died, she said, following a street on the map with her finger. There's no one. She looked up in time to see her ex-husband shrug in the rearview mirror. She pulled back into traffic. Uh, you got the money, he said. She didn't answer. All three hundred? Three, Ben said. I ain't doing this if you ain't got it all, her ex-husband said. Ben looked up, but they were in the city now, and it wasn't easy to find clouds. You got it all, her ex-husband asked again. She paused at a stop sign looking up the street for the office building. The lawyer was not in today, but the receptionist was a notary. Won't a lawyer need to sign? Margaret asked the receptionist. The receptionist looked at the papers. He's already signed, she said. She looked up. I'll need identifications. Margaret knew her ex-husband wanted the money first, but the presence of the receptionist kept him quiet. She handed the expired driver's license that she kept for him so he wouldn't lose it to the receptionist, who studied the picture intently for a few seconds and then looked at him. Sign here, the receptionist said. Her ex-husband wrote his name. Then she let go of Ben's hand and signed below her ex-husband's scrawl. Outside, her ex-husband grabbed her arm. Don't touch me, she said. She backed away and reached into her purse. She gave him the money and waited as he counted. I'll drop you by the bus station, she said. He seemed more subdued now that he had the money. She thought he was probably on his way to the Carolina coast for a while before he headed south for the winter. But she could never be sure. She let him out at the bus station. He said nothing as he left. She turned off the motor. She took Ben's suitcase from the trunk and opened it on the back seat. She got a clean shirt and changed it for the already damp one Ben had on. She left the suitcase on the back seat. As she slid in the front, she checked her folder again. She had the signed papers with her now, thank God, and the health records from the doctors and the hospital. She strapped Ben back into his seat. She drove, following the route signs out of the city, where she rarely came for business or pleasure. In 25 minutes, she was back on the freeway. I look for clouds again, Ben. See what you can see. Ben stared, and after a while he said, See? That's good, Ben. I do good? Yes. She paused before she said, Always look for clouds, Ben, and then think of me coming to visit. Visit? He said. Visit means I come to see you come to be with you. But she knew she could rarely get off work to make this long drive. 
She drove well under the speed limit for another two hours. The signs marking the distance to Gowanda were now interspersed every few miles. Ben had been looking out the side window. For the last few miles, his attention had been on the sky. Cloud, Ben said excitedly. She looked up. It looks like a cow. Mommy, he said. She laughed. Mommy doesn't look like a cow, she said. But she was deeply touched. She patted the side of his head with the palm of her hand while keeping her eyes on the road. She put her hand back on the wheel. She wished she could feel better about this new accomplishment. But he'd forget her soon enough, and she'd be lost in the sky with Weeki. Her heart ached so that she frowned and took her eyes off the road for an instant to look at him. And when she looked back to the road, she could just make out the sign for Gowanda, 34 miles. She tried not to think of the relief she hoped would come when he had caregivers. But an unformed dream of future normalcy had invaded her heart and mind, and it brought on ever-present pain of guilt. She pulled into a rest stop and took him into a stall in the ladies' restroom. After he finished, she brought him goldfish from a vending machine and opened the bag for him when they were back in the car. He finished the goldfish, and she gave him a Mars bar with a wrapper off. He ate it slowly, but took big bites. She wiped stray chocolate off his hands and mouth with a tissue from a box she had under the seat behind her feet. What is it, Ben? He pointed to the sky. He turned. Mommy! He grinned. She followed the signs. The road was two lane now. She wanted to stop the car and take him in her arms, envelop him with a hug he'd never forget. But it would only confuse him and scare him. She saw the three-story institute, its main building with a clock tower and a wing on each side, like open arms, the grounds not well tended. She pulled up a long drive that curved to the front entrance. She could see paint peeling on the windowsills and the brick walls pocked with holes from lost mortar and crumbled bricks. The door to the side of the main double door had two pieces of white typing paper tacked side by side at eye level and said, Reception, written in black marker. I do good, Ben asked as she unbuckled his seatbelt. Yes, Ben, you did real good. The second story is Dilemma, where a physician father must make a decision to save or let his severely injured son live or die. Here's the story. Dilemma by William H. Coles His sweet troubled son, alone in his room, he and his wife sitting downstairs, irritated by the bass thrust of loud music coming from the second floor. They knew he had taken drugs, taken him to a psychiatrist, paid for the Prozac that insurance didn't cover. But they didn't know that he had taken a loaded shotgun from the locked cabinet, a gun that he put with a stock on the floor, and while sitting on the bed, placed the barrels under his chin and pushed down on the trigger. After the explosion, they were quickly inside the room. The gun had fallen to the floor. His son had fallen to one side, his face gone, the lower jaw blown away, a few upper teeth haphazardly clinging to flesh. Nose and lower lids gone. The deflated eyeballs wrinkled like a fallen souffle. His son's legs, then his arms, went into spasms. He was alive but without air. I'm a surgeon, he thought. Focus. Think like a doctor and not a father. 
His wife had crumpled to the floor, her hands over her eyes, wailing. He held his son's head with both hands, straightened the torso. Get up, he said to his wife. You've got to do this. She stood. Slide the pillow under his shoulders. He let the head fall back, hoping to find the glistening end of the trachea. There were no landmarks, only flesh and blood and bits and slivers of bone. Bring me a razor, a toothbrush, towels, he said. He needed tools, and he needed to keep her busy. His wife was sobbing now. Her bare feet made a dampened sound on the wooden floor of the hall. He supported the head trying to find a position so his son might suck in air. He pressed the chest to see if expulsion of air could show him the trachea. Should he let his son die? He saw no air. If he lived, he'd have no life. He'd be blind, unable to eat or taste, never smell, might be deaf, never talk. He'd be trapped in the dark with no way to communicate. She returned. He swabbed with a towel, told his wife to press to stem the ooze. He used the smooth end of a toothbrush to separate tissue. Bring me some dental floss, he said. It would be a blessing for his son to die. But he refused to wish his son had been more thorough, not left him with these decisions. He saw the glint of the tracheal cartilage. He slipped the handle of the razor behind it. His son could live, at least to get to emergency. There was a swoosh of intake of air. It would have to be now before she came back. He still had time. How crucial for her. It could allow her grief to shrink to a memory with time. His wife handed him the dental floss. Now he could firmly isolate the trachea, knot it gently, hold it in a position until a cannula could be inserted when help came. Bring wet towels, he said. He looked at the head of the son he had loved, a head he would never recognize again. His heart ached. He leaned forward and kissed the one ear that was left. Was there movement? He touched the ear again, running his finger along the pinna. Yes, the head seemed to move as a bee is attracted to a flower. He could not let his son die. He adjusted the trachea opening to assure air would pass. At the sight of his son, the ambulance crew froze with an instant perception of what the future might bring. The third story is about a healthcare worker on a ward with terminally ill patients who die prematurely unnoticed on nights when the worker is alone on her shift. Here's the story, crossing over. Crossing Over by William H. Coles. My name is Agnes Swaggart and I work in this nursing home for next to nothing. I do good things for old folks like Mr. Wiggins, who has been here with us for two months. He lost his hair to radiation, his eyesight to Cadillacs, and his voice to a trach. He moans nonstop, drools and spits, shits five times a day, so the sheets gotta be changed. I don't think he ever sleeps. I go to sit for a moment at the nurse's station and put my arms on the counter. I got scars on my right arm, and I set to thinking, as I often do when I feel like this. Them scars make me think about my kin, grandma mostly. 
Mr. Wiggins moans, but I pay him no mind. Mr. Wiggins will be number 59. Funny how I can see every one of them. I think goodly about each one, being as knew them so well. Like being down in front of a movie theater, and the lights go on, and you turn around, and there they are, lined up row after row. Sometimes I think I'm a mother duck, all of them waddling behind me, crossing over the road to the other side. Mr. Wiggins is whining real good now, so I think about Grandma. What a woman she was. I'd be guessing I liked her more than Mama or Daddy. It was my granny who taught me after Mama had left for work, and it was bedtime. What is it, Grandma? I said to her one night. Your mother will never teach you. No, 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 what's that in your hand? I had expected she had a peppermint stick hidden for me, but it was only a cigarette. She lit up, took out the cigarette from her lips, and picked a piece of tobacco from her tongue. When can I smoke, I asked. When you're old enough to know what's right and wrong. I know what's right or wrong, I said. You don't know how. Your mama ain't teaching you the ways of the Lord. She told me, Grandma, she told me how Jesus had this fish when lots of people come. He kept cutting up the fish, and he fed the whole crowd, and then they wanted bread, and Jesus had this loaf, and when you sliced it, it just kept coming until everyone weren't hungry no more. It's the suffering, precious, she said. That's where the real learning is. Jesus taught us to suffer unto me. It's the suffer part your mama don't know nothing about. She's godless. And I ain't going to tell you about it, so don't ask. You mean because Daddy left? I don't know as I blame your mother. What with her troubles and all. You're too young to understand. She taught me, Grandma. She did. We must know ourselves, Grandma said. Jesus went into the dark, and it was hot and dry, and he stayed there for a long time like none of us could. And when they put them spikes through his hands and feet, he never cried out. Never once. I know, I said, but I really wasn't sure. You don't know nothing, she said. I can make you into a real woman. I'd like that, I said. Hold out your arm, Grandma said. I did as she commanded, putting out my arm, pulling back my nighty sleeve. Sit up on the edge of the bed, she said. I shifted my legs so they hung over the side. Don't you flinch, she said. She took two strong draws on a cigarette till it was glowing, and she put the tip on the white part of my arm and pressed down. The pain went shooting up, not like lightning, but like when you get your fingers shut in the door. I sat there looking at Grandma and never flinched, never cried. Grandma counted. One, two, three, four, five. She pulled the cigarette away. That was real good, she said, real good. Now we do one more time tonight. And over the next month, I got to know how Jesus, our Savior, handled pain, because he was like God's son, and it made him real special. I got to where Grandma could count five or six times. Real good, she said. I was proud of you. You is a good learner. Well, old Mr. Wiggins is alone again now. I wait till after the night shift comes on. The only nurse is on the second floor. I can hear when she moves. It's so quiet and not except for Mr. Wiggins' whiny moan. Loud he is tonight, bless his soul. 
past being able to suffer like a real Christian. He moaning like a heathen now. I don't need my medicine syringe for this. I just take away the breathing machine, hold my hand over his mouth and pinch his nose. I got sterile gloves on, of course. He's in restraints. At first, he wiggles like a fish out of water on a dry dock. Then in three minutes, it's over. I put the breathing machine back on. God bless you, I say to Mr. Wiggins as he's crossing over. God bless you. I go out and clean up Mrs. Sampson. She's got bladder problems. How you making it, I say to her. She tries to smile. I like that, even though she's suffering. It's like she ain't giving in. Could you give me some water, Agnes, she says. I look at her. Don't you fret, dear. I bring the water as soon as I drop Mr. Wiggins' dirty sheets by the laundry. Hurry, she said. I can tell you this. I heard the first sound of a whine in her voice. The first sign of her not taking her suffering like the good Christian woman she used to be. These stories and more than 35 others can be enjoyed free online, as well as five novels at storyandliteraryfiction.com a website dedicated to providing resources for fiction writers. Resources that include essays, interviews, a blog, a newsletter, a workshop, and tutorial, and much, much more. Thanks for listening, and goodbye. This podcast is a production of storyandliteraryfiction.com.